I'm going to read to us from Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. This will also be the the passage for the sermon this evening. You can follow along in, in your worship folder if you'd like. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This evening, it's a privilege to be able to uh, welcome Reverend Joe Dennessy. I know many of you here know Joe. Some of you may not know Joe. Uh, Joe is a RUF campus minister at Penn State. Uh, Just finished his first year there, and prior to that was RUF campus minister at UAB. How long were you at UAB? Six years. Six years at UAB. And uh, I meant to say beforehand, and I forgot, uh, feel free to give us an update okay. about how things are going. We'd love to know how stuff's going at Penn State. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good evening. It's um, awesome being back, and it's incredible seeing all of you. Um, Red Mountain was home for a long time for us. The, the first time I ever actually worshipped here it was in Five Points then was in April of 2003. Uh, I believe that uh, Jeff was playing then, and um, it is so good to hear uh, the musicians here too. I I miss it so much. Um, Melissa and I are on our way back from summer conference. Some of you have asked. We've come back from summer conference, and it's funny, ever since I got south of the Mason-Dixon line, my allergies have been going crazy, so if I cough and sniffle, you will know why. Um, we, we left uh, UAB uh, last year after serving there for six years, and we loved RUF at UAB um, so much. UAB is my alma mater, and so we miss it, uh, but we, we accepted a call to go up to Penn State, and it's been a great year. It's been a challenging year. It's been a, a difficult year in many ways. And it's been um, extremely confirming in so many ways that God has called us there. Um, uh, the ministry there is, is, is still going strong. Um, 
they no, you know, there was no mass exodus once I got there. In fact, we just got back from taking 35 students down to a summer conference, which is a much longer drive than it was from Birmingham. In fact, I think they're just now getting back. Um, and, and life at uh, Penn State is different from UAB in so many ways. Um, at, at Penn State, football is king. At UAB, um, not so much. Um, I am pulling for the football program to come back. Uh, Penn State has 45,000 students, and UAB has 18,000 students. And obviously, Penn State's north of the Mason-Dixon line, which means a lot. And UAB is in the heart of Dixie. Uh, and yet, God has been gracious to us. And one of the things that's been confirming to me um, is that... Demographics shift everywhere. Cultures are different. People are different. And yet one constant, the constant, is that Jesus is still king of his church. And that Jesus is still on the move and he uses people like you and me to bring his gospel. And even when we find that to be challenging or stretching, God knows exactly what he's doing. He's not sitting by idly. He's actively involved in our work. This is a transition year for me, and he's been actively at work. This is a transition year for Adam at UAB, and God is actively at work. And even now, it's a transition year for Will here at Red Mountain, and God is actively involved. This is... uh, Ascension Sunday. I don't know if you noticed this. The lectionary readings all had similar themes that God is king. Uh, The Gospels highlight that Jesus came as a servant uh, to seek and save the lost. He came to serve his people. Uh, He was crucified. And then this Easter season we've celebrated that he rose from the dead victoriously, literally, not figuratively. And on Ascension Sunday, what we remind in pointed ways is that Jesus claims authority over all creation and reminds us that he is the king of his church. And he guarantees the eventual glorification of all who love him. That is that one day we will be made perfectly holy in Christ's sight because he will come back and gather us to himself What I'm saying is that you have a king in heaven who is for you, who loves you. Uh, This king has promised to right all wrongs. And we can't even begin to think about him righting all wrongs unless we also think about our hopes and our dreams. So what are your hopes? What are your dreams? Where do you want to be in five years or ten years? I know that some of you probably want to make partner at your law firm. Some of you want to start a family or be finished starting a family in five years. Uh, Maybe some of you want to be married. Maybe you want to see um, God bring about great moral change in your life over the next five years. You feel the sting of sin in your life and... You're tired of fighting. What does wholeness in your life look like? 
Because another way of asking this question is, where is there longing in your life? Where are you acutely aware of the brokenness in your life? And how would you like to see them fixed? Because what this passage is asking us is, do we see our hopes and our dreams and our longings in light of a king? Do we see these things in light of King Jesus who is ascended at the right hand of the Father who is for us? Who is even now interceding for us, pleading for us to the Father? In verse 1, Luke sets the context for our passage. He says, I wrote another book. It's the Gospel of Luke. And there I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what's the context? Oh, only all that Jesus said and did. Not so much. So from this, persp- from this passage's perspective, I want to ask three questions tonight. What has Jesus done? What is he doing? And how is he misunderstood? So first, what has Jesus done? Luke sets the context for us in his gospel. Like I said, God becomes man. He's born of a virgin. And I already said that he, was, he came to be a servant. But in chapter 5, Luke tells us a story about a paralytic. And his friends lower him down to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did and he said so many things. But he came to bring healing, and he came to forgive us of our sins. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want our sinfulness dealt with? Who doesn't want healing? I know that I do. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus' approval ratings were always in flux, going up and down, peaking on Palm Sunday, plummeting on Good Friday. He was tortured and killed for treason. And all of this scripture tells us was according to God's plan. And Jesus rose from crucifixion for sins to bring life for all of us. Verse 3 tells us Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Some of my students um, previously at at UAB and currently at at Penn State really wrestle with the reliability of Scripture. Like, how can we read this passage and, and know that this is true? That Jesus really did show himself to many, proving that he had risen from the dead? I think some of us wrestle with the same thing, don't we? Think about this. Acts was written pretty early on, in the early 60s. It's quoted by other books before the year 100 AD. It's already being quoted at that point, circulated widely. Luke mentions over a hundred people by name in the book of Acts. Over a hundred people by name. And similarly, in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul says this, there's some overlapping themes. 
For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at that same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Tim Keller has helped me think through passages like these. I think they're significant. They were early passages. They were publicly read passages, widely circulated passages. Paul says, and Luke says, there were eyewitnesses early. 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus is risen from the dead, after he's ascended into glory, and they say, if you don't believe me, here are their names. Some of them have passed, but some of them are still alive. When Acts, when, when Luke is talking about the people that were there, he names them. There was an early witness, an early sort of, go see for yourself. Because if these people had not been alive, if they had not seen what Luke and Paul said that they saw, they would have been exposed publicly as frauds. And the world would have jumped on that. And there's just no record that that ever happened. Because the people that Luke and Paul mentioned by name actually saw Jesus alive. And this information changes everything, doesn't it? Because it's more than information. It changes everything. Should you build your life on this truth... This means that God will not hold your sins against you. That God will fully and finally bring healing. This means that the things that you think and say and do and the things that keep you up at night sometimes because you wish you could go back 12 years and unsay that thing, undo that thing. If you were in Christ, he will not hold that against you. What this means is that if you do not feel righteous, you're in the right place. Because the righteous one is for us. The righteous one was crucified for us, raised for us, was ascended for us, and even now pleads his merit to the Father. So that you can have hope in this life and the next That is a good king. Christian, you have a good king who knows you, who is for you. And even now as we gather in his name, we're not gathering primarily to sing to him. We're gathering primarily because he promises to meet us. Now, and at the table... Jesus is present with us even now. See, biblical Christianity does not teach us how to get right with God. It teaches us how God made it right for us to be in relationship with him. So the first question is, what has Jesus done? What is the context when Luke says, I wrote down in another book all that Jesus said and did. What did he do? Everything. By his life, his death, his resurrection, everything. He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves to make us whole. 
Well, what is he doing? He's preparing to leave. But before he promises to leave, he promises to send his Holy Spirit. And then Jesus ascends up into heaven, out of sight. And the point, I don't think, is that heaven is up there, but that Jesus does not intend to come back for a while. But he will. I may have told this story here once before, I'm not sure. But a few years ago, Melissa and I went to Ireland. Um, it was She was pregnant with Anne Charlotte, so it was about four years ago, I guess. And while we were there, we sort of lucked out. There was this historic event happening. If if you're not familiar with this, the the, the Irish Catholics and uh, the Queen, the monarchy in Britain, they really don't like each other. There's a lot of hatred and animosity towards each other. And the Queen was coming to make a historic visit in Dublin the day that we landed. And so it was all over the headlines, you know, and if we could have missed the headlines all over the the airport, we couldn't have missed it when we got to Dublin because every road that our GPS tried to take us down, detour, detour, detour. So I look at Melissa and I say, Melissa, we can't miss this. Like, this is a big deal. Like, I know that we haven't slept in 35 hours, but we have to see the queen. This is going to be a great story. I can use this in a sermon one day. And so we wait for hours, and we're so tired, so jet-lagged, slow, so sleep-deprived. We take turns, like, falling asleep as we're standing, like, no, 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 the queen's coming, the queen's coming. And um, after a while, we see this sort of, you know, motorcycles go through. We're like, okay, okay, something's going to happen. A few cars go through, you know, nice cars. And, okay, that's the warm-up. So we're waiting. Like they tested, no bombs, you know, no security threat for the queen. And um, pretty soon the police start to dismiss us. It's time to go home. That was it. Wait, I thought the queen was coming. The queen did come. This is the most anticlimactic wait, the most anticlimactic story, right? There was no hat visible for all to see, no gloved hand out the window waving. Just some old lady in a car that drove by and we have to take someone's word for it because she was so afraid to get shot that she didn't show herself. Talk about a letdown and talk about losing everything that I had billed for Melissa. This is going to be worth it. Melissa actually at one point wanted to take pictures. She's like, maybe we could sell pictures of the queen. I don't think you could do that. There are better pictures of the queen. Verse 11, we read, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. You're looking up there. He's not coming back for a while. But when he does, you cannot miss your king when he returns. You will not miss your king when he returns. It will not be anticlimactic. You will be taken off guard and the world will watch and see the king of the universe, the king of his church, return for his bride. We worship this king who is ascended into glory. We worship this king that has all authority in the universe. And what this means, of course, is that no purpose of his can fail. He's the king with all authority in the universe. 
no purpose of his can fail. Even when his purpose is to use people like you and me as his witnesses. Frail and weak as we may be and we feel it. God's plan A is to use us as his witnesses in the world. Hold that thought. Last point. How was Jesus misunderstood? When Jesus rose from the grave victoriously on Easter Sunday, he was not yet finished accomplishing all of our salvation. I know what you're thinking. To Telestai, right? Like you've heard that sermon. It is finished. He said it on the cross. Yes, the cross is the linchpin. Everything has come, like, it cannot fail at this point. Jesus has accomplished salvation. He died for us. But it's not until he goes back into heaven, we read in Hebrews, that he sprinkles his blood on the altar in heaven. That Jesus' ascension into heaven is, is quite important to our salvation. We rightly emphasize the cross. We rightly emphasize his resurrection. We under-emphasize his ascension. Where he goes to sit down. It's finished. Without his ascension, we're still hopeless. And the disciples knew in some sense that Jesus was going to do something big. They sensed the cross was big, resurrection is bigger. Jesus, what are you about to do? Verse 6. So when Jesus and his disciples had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, we know that you have honored the Father with all that you've done. You lived perfectly, a sinless, perfect life. You did that for us. We know that you suffered unjustly, that you died a shameful death on a cross bearing the sins of the world. We know you did that for us. But you defeated death, Jesus. You rose from the dead, Jesus. Will you now rule as our king? Will you free us from the oppression of the Romans? And will you set everything right? Jesus, will you fix our kingdom now? And he gives them a complicated no. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, the disciples believe the right things about Jesus. He's God. He died. He rose again. He's king. They're right in all of that. He's going to make things right, also right. The last point is where they begin to misunderstand him. What is it going to look like, Jesus, for you to make things right? You're the king of the Jews, Jesus. It stands to reason that you would fix our Jewish kingdom here and now and kick these Romans home. Shouldn't you restore Israel? Give us our military and political power back? And Jesus responds, in my estimation... 
with something that means what I have in mind is something much bigger than that. Jesus does this all the time. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon when, when the four um, friends, I think there were four, lower uh, the paralytic down to Jesus from the roof. Remember, they couldn't get into the house because it was so crowded. Everyone wanted to listen to Jesus. Uh, they persist. They climb onto the roof. They tear it open. They lower him to Jesus. We're going to get you healed tonight. We believe that he can do it. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, Your sins are forgiven. But we brought you here so that I can walk. Like, my sins, that's great and all, Jesus, but I just want to walk. Because as it is, I'm, I'm lying here. And this is sort of embarrassing because we've been lowered down. What I have in mind is so much bigger than that. Your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. Jesus is always doing this. We come to him with our idea of healing and wholeness. And Jesus has something else in mind. Something better in mind. And I suspect that we too need to hear Jesus say to us, what I have in mind for you is so much bigger than that. Because Jesus does want us to come to him with our brokenness. He does want us to come to him with our requests and our prayers. Make us whole. He wants us to come to to him with our burdens. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When I was in college, my parents divorced. And it it rocked my world. It felt like finding out that gravity wasn't really a natural law. and It just felt like everything was undone. And shortly after that, I I began to pray for the first time in I don't know how long. Lord, will you you fix my family? Will you fix my life? I'm not doing well in so many spheres right now. Will Will you come and make me whole? And shortly after that, he began to do a work within me. The, the God that I had told others surely didn't exist began to do a work, but he didn't put my parents back together. He, he didn't answer the, the, my prayer in the way that I wanted him to, but he came and he began to work. Red Mountain is in a season of great transition. You've got a new pastor, Will. I'm really happy about that. And another has announced that he's leaving, Adam. And some of you, I'm sure, are sad about that, um, confused by that. I, I know that I was when I heard it. Even while you might be hopeful, because you, there's newness and there's, there's leaving and it's confusing and it's hopeful... What are your hopes and dreams for Red Mountain? Where is your hope fixed? Is your hope fixed on will? I hope not. Is it fixed on Adam? Has your hope left? I hope not. See, this passage reminds us to fix our hopes and our dreams and our longings on the one that we were meant to, on a king 
who can bear that weight, who can answer our prayers, who is for us, who has all authority in the universe, fix our hopes and our dreams and our longings on our King, on nothing else, on no one else. The disciples asked Jesus, will you fix Israel? And he says, I'm going to do something bigger than that. How are you going to do that? But you're going to be my witnesses. And wherever you go, you're going to point them to me. Well, why are we going to point them to you? Because if you point them to anything else, if you point them to anyone else, their longings will always be longings. And their brokenness will always be brokenness. And their dreams will come up empty. I think most of us in this room would acknowledge that Jesus is our king. I think most of us would acknowledge that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and in the church. I think most of us are here because we trust that Jesus can bring wholeness where we need it. And yet, the ways that we go to him with our longings, we have our own idea of what fixing those must look like. We just need to go to Jesus. We just need to go to our King and say, here's my brokenness, you do with it what you will. Because what he has in mind is already so much bigger. He is our wholeness. He is our dream. Here's the point. Your king is at work. And and one day we're going to see that kingdom come in fullness, in perfect completeness, because it cannot fail. And it will not fail. And his plan in the meantime includes you and me pointing others to that king. Broken and filled with, long as, filled with longing as we may be. He's sending us. And friends, this is not a consolation prize. It's good news that he's sending us, that he's using us as witnesses in this world to bear witness to the king. You were made to witness about him. But you weren't just made for it. If Jesus is your king, he has equipped you for this. He says as much when he says, I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. He's not just telling you to do something. He's enabling you to do something. You're not alone. And some of us are wired in such a way that we can't hear something like this without feeling guilt or manipulated. And I would just encourage you not to hear it that way. Your risen king has ascended into heaven, but he's not distant. He's present even now by his spirit, as his word is taught, as his sacrament is received by faith. Even now he's interceding for you, watching out for you, and coming back for you. This is true, all of it. If the very idea of becoming an active witness for God scares you, you're not alone. 
But let me suggest just some small tangible ways to start doing this as someone who is equipped by the king. Start in your community groups. My community group was always the safest place for me that I knew of. Where I was loved and accepted. Start there by sharing what God, your king, is doing in your life. You might say, you know, God's dealing with my impatience at work and at home. And it's uncomfortable, but it's life-giving. And you encourage others to praise your king. Or if, if sharing the gospel is light years from what you're thinking about doing, maybe you could invite somebody that you're friends with or a co-worker and say, you know, our king visits us and is at work when we gather every Sunday at Red Mountain. Will you come with me and see that? Or maybe you've wronged somebody. I... I think apologies make the world go wrong, or make the world go round. Forgiveness makes the world go round. It's the heart of the gospel. Evangelistic opportunities open up when you say, look, look, I sinned against you, and I've asked my God to forgive me, and I need to ask you to forgive me. Will you do that? We naturally look to institutions, we look to people, we look to agendas to make us whole. And so does everyone else. We need witnesses to point us to the king, and we need to be witnesses to point others to the king. Because we have a king in heaven that's for us. And we get to be his witnesses. Praise him. You know, Jesus laid his life down for the church. He has more than a vested interest in us and what he's calling us to do and how he has equipped us. He laid his life down for us. He's not going to let us fail. He's ascended into glory and his glory awaits us. He has secured our wholeness. He is dealing with our longings. And he has equipped us to be his witnesses To his glory wherever we go. By the king's grace, let's do that. And we go with confidence because our king reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a king and your son Jesus. Who came to pursue us as a servant would but who was raised in glory, ascended in the right hand of your throne with all authority, all dominion. He is our king. And we ask that you would strengthen us by him. Would you send your Holy Spirit to enable us to follow him, to love him, to believe in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.